0: The earlier you have information in animal's life, the better the return on the investment for having gotten that because there's more decisions to be made. So in an idealized world, that group of calves that you purchased already had that information. So in part, that information helped inform the buy. So it helped you determine, you know, what what are these animals worth to me? Absent that, if you had to then get that information once you'd already bought them, then the number of decisions you can make become limited. You might sort them. Um, you might, uh, the implant strategy might be different. Um, something of that nature. Turnaround time though, um, becomes a bit of an issue. Uh, so currently right now in, in seed stock settings, that turnaround time could be a, a matter of uh, a few weeks to, you know, a month. Um, and so in a feedlot setting, um, if I don't have it back for a month, well, kind of key decisions have already been made. Um, so so that's something I think that, that needs to be worked on, if you will. Um, but those are, you know, those are, are fixable things, I think, going forward.
1: A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. High D from DSM Firmanish can help your cattle get the vitamin D they need this winter. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Data shows most cattle don't get the vitamin D they need, especially in winter months. High D from DSM Firmanish can ensure your cattle get the recommended vitamin D level to support bone strength, help immunity, and improve performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash hy-d to learn more.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen, and I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University. It's my pleasure to welcome our guest today, a, a collaborator of mine from Once Upon a Time, Dr. Matt Spangler. So Spangler grew up on a diversified crop and livestock farm in Kansas, and then received his bachelor's degree from Kansas State University, came up here to Iowa State for his master's degree, and earned his doctorate from the University of Georgia. He's currently a professor and extension beef genetic specialist at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And while there at UNL, he works with a team of colleagues as well at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center in Clay Center, Nebraska, to collectively improve genetic and genomic selection tools and methods. So welcome to the show, Matt.
0: Oh, thank you. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and visit with you.
2: So I was trying to think, we definitely um, started pretty similar times. What year did you start at UNL?
0: 2008.
2: Okay, right. So you would have started just a year before. So I started uh, here at Iowa State in 2009. And then we really got to know each other, I think, through our collaborative efforts on having one of the first, what did they call that, the CAP grants kind of that the USDA offered for funding. And so we had one of the, we had the beef feed efficiency. So there was feed efficiency grants offered from the USDA um, in 2010. And there was a, a swine one, a beef one. And a dairy one, right? I think those That's were right. the three, yeah, that were funded, and um, we were proud to say we were on the number one ranked. I still remember, yeah. I still remember where I was when I got the email from Jerry Taylor from Missouri that said some days are diamonds, and we yeah. had gotten <laughs> the That's email. Right. That, so yeah, that was um, the first time that we really got to start thinking about how different disciplines like genetics and nutrition could really work together to improve traits like feed efficiency. So I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those things today. But before we get started, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about how you got involved in the beef industry?
0: Yeah, so I I grew up on uh, you know as the bio said a, a diversified crop and livestock farm in South Central Kansas, and and so my early experience in beef cattle was as a as a young child, my family had a cow calf operation, and that transitioned to a a yearling or or stalker animal operation then transitioned back to cow calf. Um, and, um, you know, since leaving there, um, uh, my dad and I, uh, over the years have still, um, fed cattle, so owned cattle and, and had them fed at a, at a custom feed yard. So, um, involved in production agriculture, um, uh, you know, uh, since I was born. Um, and, and so that's really where I can trace my interest in the the beef industry too, was simply having grown up in it. Um, and it was partway through my, my undergraduate career when I was trying to figure out what I really wanted to do. I decided you know, graduate school was interesting and every class I took, I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to be a nutritionist. I want to be a physiologist. And then, then I took my first genetics class and then ultimately an undergraduate animal breeding and genetics class and, and it coupled together my interest in livestock, uh, beef cattle specifically, and and uh, kind of uh, applied mathematics or statistics. I was like, man, this is this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, and, you know, the rest is is history, as they say.
2: I love interviewing folks on this show when you can tell that they have found the place where they're supposed to be. Um, and it seems like, I think I think academics sort of forces you into figuring that out, right? And and I've talked before about how the advanced nutrition class that I teach now was actually my light bulb class. And I was sitting in class going, huh, "This is pretty cool. I could I could see how nutrition can affect everything," and I could totally see you sitting in genetics class thinking, "Oh." Genetics affects everything. This is so cool. I can I can dictate what happens to literally every other segment after I create
0: this this calf's genetic potential. Yeah, and and, and part of it, you know, I remember being a, a kid and and thinking, you know, why why do I mate a, a sire that looks like this to a dam that looks like this, and the offspring don't look like what I thought they should? Right? Why, why does that happen? And 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 so you know, all of a sudden formal genetics training provided that answer to me. And, and so I, I, I really liked that. It was, it was putting some of the pieces of the puzzle uh, together in my, in my mind. So as, as you said, very much a, a light bulb moment and, and, you know, at least for me over, over my career of whatever, 15, 16 years so far, there's been a lot of light bulb moments. Um, and, and that's part of the reason I like academia, um, is, uh, you know, we we have a job where we get to continually learn, and um, you know, for me, some of those other light bulb moments are you know early in in, in my career. I don't know how it is for other people, but um, you know, there's this bit of wrestling, at least for me, in in terms of what what am I, right? Where where, where do I fit in this big world? Um, and and there becomes a point of of kind of self awareness of well, this is what I am, right? Um, I'm not. I am not this other person. I'm not that other person. I'm, I'm me. And, and being able to form a career then around, you know, what you bring to the table, um, I I think is probably useful in in any career, this, this self-awareness of this is what I am, this is what I'm not. um, And that's okay.
2: Absolutely. I have. um, So we've, Chatted some in the show about Clifton Strengths. So I'm actually like a coach for that, and um, obviously, Mary there at UNL has done quite a bit with Strengths as well. And one of my top 10 is individualization. So I love to see when somebody really embraces. Just like you say, Matt, that you're not like everybody else, but you're going to bring this unique contribution, whether it's, you know, I like nutrition and repro so I can bring that angle or I like genetics, but I've had experience in cow, calf, stalker and feeding animals. And so I can bring the awareness that what I do affects all of those segments. So I love to see that in people.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's a hard thing, right? Because we're in a competitive Um, landscape. The the reality is academia is competitive. Whether you're counting the amount of external money you get, you're counting the number of publications you have, you know, we're counting stuff and it's inherently competitive. And so it's easy to compare yourself to that other person that's been very successful. However, you define success and say, well, that's what it looks like, right? I I need to be that person. Uh, You know, that's not necessarily true. Um, because that person was unlike anyone else. <laughs> so, so you, you can't mimic that.
2: Absolutely. So, uh, remind me what your appointment is officially there at UNL?
0: Um, 60% uh, extension, 30% research, and 10% teaching. So, I have a, a three-way split.
2: Okay. So, Obviously, with that amount of research, you've got graduate students that you get to work with.
0: That, that's correct. And so um, at any given time, um, between graduate students and postdocs, I'm probably between three and five. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, um, I like the three way split. Uh, it fits me well. Um, really like working with graduate students, um, because uh, in, in my mind, when done correctly, you um, I learn through them. And and that's something I don't think they can appreciate in their stage of career. Um, but but they're really my vehicle for learning. Um, and it forces it. Uh, and I really enjoy that.
2: So I'm curious how you help your mentees, whether that be your graduate students, or you mentioned you had postdocs as well. How do you help them embrace the self-identification, like you said, like understanding that they're going to be different? They're not just Matt 2.0. Um, and in fact you don't want to make Matt 2.0 right you want to no. make Matt 10.0 <laughs> that's
0: that's exactly right and and so that's a that's a really challenging thing to convey is um, I don't want you to be like me I want you to be better um, maybe not better in every way right um, but but there has to be something and this is me being selfish you know when when I leave this career I want to be able to look back and say you know what I, I help make people better than me So, so the discipline, the industry is an okay spot. Um, that, you know, that's what I want at the end of the day. Um, every student's different, you know, some respond to pats on the backs and that boys, um, others respond to you can do better, right. Um, the bar's up here, you're down here, step it up. Um, and, and being able to identify who's who and, and what, what really, um, it gets them motivated is, is a constant challenge for me. Um, but it's uh, to me, it's a maturation. They, they, they learn enough to to all of a sudden be able to have what I call, you know, kind of the adult scientific discussion. Um, and it's at that point, you try to identify right here's where this person may fit in the world. Right. And and then you try to, you try to encourage that, um, provide extra opportunities so that they can hone those skills um and, and create a self-awareness of here's what you're good at and uh you know what here are the areas of weakness um that you need to keep an eye on and continue to work on. That requires just candid discussion, which which sometimes isn't fun, but I don't know how else to do it. Um and and so it's it's that kind of individualized process. You know what I've learned like I said, they're all different. There's not a cookie cutter approach to coaching, being a mentor. And I like those words cause I don't manage them. Um, I don't think they should be managed. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's trying to, trying to help them identify where are you strong? What are you passionate about? Um, and, and helping them then grow in those areas.
2: It's such a challenge, too, because they're so young when they first come to like when the master students, for example, come to graduate school, they might still be 21 or 22 at most. And it's it's very difficult sometimes to try to get them to figure out what their passion is, because, you know, they're just trying to figure out which way is up at that point. So I think the PhDs and the postdocs, like you say, they are so much fun to work with when they get to that point of the, like the, the fine line between confidence and competence, right? And so they're ready to be your colleague. They're ready to, like, I hate when people just want to be like, yes, that's a great idea. I want them to be like, that's a good idea, but like here's some holes in it and here's how we could make it better.
0: That, that, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the, the other thing is, is help um, coaching them through failure. Um, you know, in, in inherently research, you know, research has, has failure, I, we, we don't know the answer. That's why we're doing research um, and helping them understand that that failure is OK as long as you learn from it. Um, and that uh, I don't have the expectation that you're right all the time. I'm not right all the time. My goodness. I mean, I make mistakes all the time. And and being able to learn from that, um, bounce back from it, uh, that kind of uh, self-reliance uh, and resilience, I think is so important in, in whatever they do. And then as they, as they grow, helping them understand that they need to be kind of lifelong learners, a bit cheesy, but lifelong learners and students of the discipline, right? I, I don't want to just know what I'm doing. I want to know the history of the discipline. I, I, I want to be able to think deeply about, you know, what's been done, where are the gaps, why hasn't this been done before? Um, and, and so I'm 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 engrossed in it, um, and and helping them understand that to be successful, it has to be something you're so interested in. You want to you want to know the full trajectory of you know how did animal breeding and genetics ever start, and uh, understand it at that level. Absolutely.
2: Okay. So I want to ask some questions about like what kind of research questions your group is pursuing right now. But maybe before we do that, um, let's assume everybody who's listening has the same level of genetics expertise as me, which is not a hell of a lot. (laughs) So maybe give us a little bit of just like when you think about terms of like genetics and genomics, I feel like these are kind of thrown around a lot. Can you just give us some definitions and kind of help us put some context around that?
0: Yeah. So very high level genetics. uh, classical thing is to say that phenotype, what we see comes about, um, through this confluence of genetics and environment, right? The, the fact that somebody is a certain height, certain weight is a function of their genetic potential in the environment. They put themselves in where environments loose, right? It's, it's the diet, it's, uh, the exercise, it's where do they live? And, 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 and that's for, you know, both people and animals. Um, so so animal breeding oftentimes if we back up is is uh, often misunderstood as is what i would call reproductive physiology right the you know how do animals get get pregnant procreate that's not what i do um it's animal breeding is the discipline of changing populations uh through genetics that's that's animal breeding and so traditionally um uh, genetics was really underpinned by um, pedigree based kinship. And so I think most people understand pedigree at some level. And so we leverage the relationships of individuals by um, human recorded pedigree uh, to, to be able to um, determine, well, how much of this trait is explained by genetics versus other sources of variation, and then make predictions about, um, which animals are are superior genetically. So we can inform, uh, who should be parents of the next generation. Then fast forward to genomics where we, uh, uh, we map the bovine genome and and then can exploit um, genetic markers uh, across the genome. And those genetic markers we often refer to as SNPs, uh, SNP, which is a single nucleotide polymorphism, which sounds really confusing, but single one, so nucleotide, you're talking about a, a single base um, in, in DNA sequence, polymorphism, we're talking about a change. So we, we use those as markers um, to, to be able to then inform um, more reliable estimates of kinship among animals. And, and so think about it this way, based on pedigree, somebody is related to a grandparent um, by 25%. Um, that's what we call an expected value. It means on average, the relationship between you and a grandparent is 25%. But at the DNA level, That could range between zero and a half. Uh, It's just a function of what your grandparent passed on to your parent in terms of uh, genetics, and then what your parent passed on to you. So there's this what we call Mendelian sampling—a random shuffle of uh, half of an individual's um, uh, genetics is passed from generation to generation. So you get this nice bell-shaped curve between a grandparent and an individual with a mean at 25% and variation from zero to a half. So if we use genomic markers to inform kinship, we get a more accurate estimate. And it's those more accurate estimates of kinship um, that have have really helped us exploit this uh, new technology in in animal breeding plans. And by the way, if anyone's done things like... uh, 23andMe or something like that, same general concept. You get an estimate of your relationship with your with your family, um, and it's based on the, the same kind of concept. Perfect.
2: So kind of with that those kind of definitions in mind, do you want to tell us a, maybe one or two of the research questions that your group is pursuing right now?
0: Yeah. So a um, couple of broad areas. One, uh, the use of what we'll call low-pass whole genome sequencing. Sounds confusing, but what we're doing is say we want to sequence the whole genome of individual beef cattle, um, but we want to do it as cheaply as possible. So we're going to do it at low coverage, meaning that when we sequence an individual, we got a lot of missing data. Um, and we use a process of imputation to fill in the gaps. So there may be um, uh, ancestors who have all those gaps filled in and we're able to fill in the missing data based on on some of those relationships. Um, and so the use of, of those kind of data to increase the accuracy of the predictions we make of animals' genetic merit as parents. Um, the other thing is we're, we're looking at um, trying to increase the accuracy of predictions we make, both genetically, so who's superior genetically, but then also predictions of phenotypic merit. So who not just genetically is superior for weight or feed efficiency, but, but who actually manifested as being the heavier animal or the more feed efficient animal trying to make those predictions coupling together genetics and what I'll loosely call metagenomics. So think of the microbiome of animals and in beef cattle, we're, we're generally interested in perhaps the rumen microbiome. So, so taking those pieces of information together uh, to make those predictions. And, and we're also looking at what I'll call the ocular microbiome, because we have an interest in, in trying to reduce the severity of, of, uh, pink eye in beef cattle. Um, so, so those are two broad buckets, but, but we also have a, a footprint in what I'll call economic index construction. So beef cattle producers are faced with a lot of, uh, genetic predictions for a myriad of traits. Um, which, which can become confusing to try to utilize. And, and so combining those in a, in a single number um, that's a function of the, the economic impact each trait would have to their enterprise makes taking uh, genetic selection decisions a lot simpler. So um, some, uh, some statistical modeling to, to try to make that a, a more customized kind of a process.
2: Okay, I have a follow-up question on each of those three areas. You bet. So the first, the first one. Okay, so you mentioned doing like whole genome but low coverage to try to make it cheaper. Are you talking about sequencing all the cows in my cow herd, or are you talking about sequencing all the steers that come into
0: my feedlot? Uh, so the answer is yes. Um, so what uh, you know, where where this technology would start is what I call it the seed stock level. So the the people that are raising. Um, uh, kind of registered animals that they're going to sell bulls um, or sell semen to commercial cow-calf producers, right? So utilizing this um, uh, new form of genomic information at that level to increase the accuracy of their genetic predictions, which in beef cattle we call expected progeny differences or EPDs. That's where it starts. The, The longer term vision though is um, we have, a relatively speaking, a small number of seed stock herds compared to all the beef cattle in the U.S. So most of the beef cattle in the U.S. come from commercial cow-calf operations or they're in feedlots. And those animals express the traits, which are really profit drivers for our industry. So I would really like to get all of those data included into our genetic predictions, The only way to do that is to somehow link them uh, through kinship to the animals in our seed stock herds. And one avenue to do that is some kind of low cost uh, genotyping strategy. Um, And and so... Um, be it low pass sequencing, or um, we also have some ideas around pooling the notion of instead of genotyping individual animals, we genotype kind of the composite of a group um, as ways to try to get all those data into our our routine predictions, and then hopefully feed forward um, uh, predictions to help people manage uh, commercial animals, be it in a cow herd or a, a feedlot.
2: Okay, so my first question is, So is this, would would this be something like, especially if you think about pooling or if we did do the individuals, you know, if I bring a group of steers in October 1st, you know, six weight calves, um, am I going to have information back soon enough that I could start to make some decisions, make some sorting decisions? Or is this something like when I buy that same source of cattle the next year, I can kind of have some better tools?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question. The the earlier you have information in animals' life, the better the return on the investment for having gotten that because there's more decisions to be made. So in an idealized world, that group of calves that you purchased already had that information. So in part, that information helped inform the buy. So it helped you determine, you know, what what are these animals worth to me? absent that if you had to then get that information once you'd already bought them then the number of decisions you can make become limited you might sort them um you might uh, the implant strategy might be different um something of that nature turnaround time though um becomes a bit of an issue uh so currently right now in in seed stock settings that turnaround time could be a a matter of um, a few weeks to, you know, a month. Um, and so in a feedlot setting, um, if I don't have it back for a month, well, kind of key decisions have already been made. Um, so so that's something I think that that needs to be worked on, if you will. Um, but those are, you know, those are, are fixable things, I think, going forward.
2: So you also mentioned phenotypes. Um, and of course, as a nutritionist, I think about phenotypes a lot. So um, I assume that this whole system would be vastly improved if we could improve the amount of end user data that was feeding back into it, right? So I'm thinking that as a feedlot nutritionist, I get closeout information, I can figure out what was the actual cost of gain for that animal from an economic standpoint, you talked about economic indexes. But also, I can think about Well, you know, I had 500 steers in this closeout, and why did I have X percentage of them that were yield grade five discounts? And I had X percent that were yield grade one premiums. And I had that one weirdo that was, you know, actually the best of both worlds. He was a yield grade two premium, but he also graded prime, like, you know, and be able to, like you said, make some of those selections. So, how do we help? So, I guess two questions. One is, I feel like I was kind of raised in the era of like you can't do anything with genetics if you don't have a million data points. So is that true when it comes to phenotypes? So do you feel like to really feedback you need to just have a ton of data, or is even some data those are very quantitative? I realize.
0: Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so even some is, is useful, and and if we think about the totality of the U.S. beef industry, we can think about small fractions of at kind of the end user data flowing back to help inform those predictions being still valuable because a small fraction could still be hundreds of thousands of animals. Um, so it, it doesn't have to be an all or none game. Um, that said though, uh, I, I could envision a scenario where, where we do quote unquote, get it all or near all. And it's, it's not necessarily to, um, with the, the goal of feeding into the, the genetic prediction aspect, but it's because the end user sees value in the information that's returned. So all of a sudden, um, you know, I, I know that this kind of genetic background works well at my feed yard, given my management strategy, right? So there's more value in these kinds of animals to me. Um, where perhaps that wasn't well quantified before, um, so so I think the answer to your question is um, some's probably better than none, um, but but certainly I'd hope there's enough kind of pull through demand for this um, because a shared value across the industry that there'd be high levels of participation.
2: Do you see an opportunity as we're starting to have more um, you know AI assisted? So like thinking about artificial intelligence, do you see an opportunity for? Um, decreased friction or less resistance to that collection of all those data because we could have something that could help us do it? Uh,
0: maybe. Um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the application of uh, advanced artificial intelligence or, or machine learning algorithms, we're still trying to, in a lot of ca- cases, find what is the best use case in agriculture. Um, and there are some examples where, where that's being used now. Um, I think of a large genetic evaluation in beef cattle where they use it to determine kind of the quality of data that's coming in and, and weight data based on, on quality. Um, but but I think that the, the larger hiccup, to be candid, is our, our industry, the beef industry, is steeply rooted in tradition, which is not all bad. But But it means that sometimes we have a hard time of changing, right? This is the way we've always done it. So I've always looked at feeder cattle and been able to gauge, you know, how much they're worth their value. Um, and you know what, it's worked. Um, now you and I might argue exactly how well that works, but you know, if somebody's still in business, it's hard to tell them what they've been doing doesn't work at all. Um, so, so being able to give up that human control and say, you know what, I'm going to rely on advanced predictive analytics to make some of those decisions. I, I think it's really at that level that our industry is going to struggle the most. The other bit is realizing that alone, your data isn't worth a lot. But in aggregate, all of a sudden it becomes valuable. I, I think that's the other thing. We often think the data we have is so incredibly valuable that I don't want to give it away because somebody's going to use it against me. Or if I do give it away, it's, it's worth a pot of gold. Well, by itself, probably isn't. But if you aggregate it as an industry, all of a sudden that aggregation um, becomes valuable and and can raise all all ships. I I think those are the two things we're going to have to fight with.
2: Yeah. Okay, so kind of along those same lines, the other area that you talked about was economic indexes. So I'm curious, and I am definitely not in this space, so I have no idea what the answer is to this question. But what do you see as some of the most promising or coolest, because you're a geneticist, so you probably think it's cool, um, some of the, the neatest you know potential EPDs that are coming down the pipeline?
0: Well, I, I, if, if we think um, somewhat futuristically, um, I, I think the, the things that hold the greatest potential value are things related to health. Um, and, and we can think of uh, examples in beef cattle, bovine respiratory disease is, is an example. Um, the reason, one of the reasons we don't have uh, EPDs or genetic predictions for those yet is because we don't have a lot of phenotypes for them uh, to allow the development of those tools. Um, but, but I, I think that's, um, really a target area that, that, um, people are are keenly interested in, um, uh, outside of that, we, we see, um, entities developing additional EPDs for things related to reproductive longevity, um, things related to uh, mature cow weight, um, feed intake and and feed efficiency. So some things that get a little bit more at the cost side of our business, uh, which I think is important because people need to practice genetic selection, thinking about profitability and not just revenue. Um, but, but certainly um, uh, looking forward, things related to health, I I think, uh, open question is, will we, will we see any kind of, uh, genetic predictions actually, um, uh, utilized in the industry related to environmental footprint? Um, so I think about things like, uh, methane emission, um, which has a lot of interest in research communities, certainly, uh, a lot of interest in, in other countries. I think about, um, uh, European Union countries, Australia. Um, but, but I think, for some of that to to really come to fruition in the US, there has to be clear economic signal um, to to want to improve that.
2: And methane in particular is something that's so affected by diet and management things, right? So I always worry about, you know, how do we how do we aggregate data from different phenotypes? you know, when we have no idea how that animal, like what was the conditions under which that animal
0: was tested? Yeah, so obviously a lot of research work that needs to be done. I would say though that I could make the same argument for uh, feed intake or for gain, right? What I feed those animals certainly impacts that. And the way we attempt uh, to adjust for that now is this notion of contemporary grouping. So, So here's a group of animals that were all fed the same diet, at the same place in the same year. And, and so we group those animals together. What we become interested in then is whether it's their methane emission or their feed intake, how do they differ amongst each other? Um, so that becomes the basis uh, then for this whole process. So, so having some knowledge of what animals were treated similarly is important. But I, I think with respect to, to methane, we can't think about that in isolation. Um, Because I suspect if I make an animal eat very little and gain very little, I can, on average, make them emit very little. Um, But that's a loser for the industry. Right. We economically can't sustain that. So how how do we look at it much more holistically and and fit something into a, a very comprehensive kind of selection scheme?
2: You mentioned mature cow weight in there earlier. And as a feedlot nutritionist, you know, I have all the economic signals right now to make that feeder steer as big as I can possibly get in before I send him down the road without tripping him over into the yield grade fours and fives too much anyway. So how do you, how, what do you think is the role of genetics in helping? balance kind of our maternal aspects and thinking about cow mature weight um, and longevity with making a calf for us that can withstand some of these big weights?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think something the, the U.S. industry for sure needs to to really uh, wrestle with right now. The good thing is mature cow weight's highly heritable. So ballpark 50% heritable, meaning if we want to change it rapidly, we can't. The, the problem is I don't, we have changed it, but probably not in the direction we would have liked. So we tended to make cows bigger. Um, You could argue that's in in signal or in response to a signal to make um, uh, growing animals or fed cattle bigger. And so it's really just what I'd call a correlated response. We made animals bigger at uh, weaning, yearling, uh, made outweights or carcass weight bigger, kept back replacement females from those matings. And so consequently, they tend to be bigger at maturity. The, the way around it um, is a few fold. One, this notion that everyone needs to retain or create their own replacement females, I believe, is false. So there's no reason why I couldn't go out and purchase replacement females that are bred to be smaller uh, at maturity and then breed them to what I would call a terminal bull, a bull that is made for high growth and good carcass merit, in which case I can kind of have my cake and eat it too. I've got smaller cows, but I can produce um, uh, sale calves that are are much larger. Um, So that's really a fundamental breeding program design perspective and, and gets to this idea that some animals are designed to be maternal. Some are designed to be uh, terminal. And that's something an industry like swine has exploited, if not perfected. Um, So people that eat pork um, eat uh, products of three or four or even more advanced crosses because they're crossing lines that are put together to have different attributes. We don't exploit that as well in beef cattle. The The other thing is to truly think about uh, genetic selection decisions in an economic framework. So, I just don't want to increase gain without thinking about from a from a system perspective what that increased gain cost me. If that increased gain means that I have cows now that cost a lot more money, and I can't have as many cows because they're bigger, that has a cost to the system. Um, and so, the tools like economic selection indexes should pit those things against each other to think about what is the most profitable genetic package. So there's tools in place to to do this. I just don't think as a beef industry, we have exploited them as well as we should. It
2: kind of makes me wonder about you know, feed intake, because if I think about an animal who's got the genetic potential to be big, often it means he's got a genetic drive to consume. So we have a lot bigger eating animals today than we did 30 or 40 years ago. And that corresponds to some of our increases in gain and selection. I'm thinking about if you have a, a selection for a smaller frame size cow, I'm guessing that a lower feed intake driver comes with that. And then if you breed her to a, a terminal bull, like you say, he's going to produce a bigger offspring. Um, it it do you have any idea of like, like I guess what are the herita- what's the heritability of feed intake, and is there a maternal versus paternal driver that we know more about?
0: Good. So um, heritability of uh, feed intake, um, you'd say between uh, thirty and forty percent. Um, so so pretty heritable, and that's really uh, dry matter intake for growing animals. the The question becomes then, well, what is, what does intake look like in a cow? And, and certainly there's been good work to say, well, if, if we feed animals a uh, high roughage diet versus high concentrate diet, kind of what are those correlations? They're certainly positive and moderate. Um, so animal eats a lot of roughage, they tend to eat a lot of concentrate. And I think reasonably that makes sense. The, the gap is, is that we're not talking about locking cows up and feeding them a certain amount of harvested feed. We're we're telling them, go out and forage yourself. Well, that's a whole different ball of wax because we cannot quantify that well. And layer into that, there's certainly some evidence that says you put cows in a pasture. One cow likes to go eat and, out and eat this type of grass. Why another cow doesn't really care. Whatever's in front of her, she's going to eat. So there's this selectivity. So quantifying that has been elusive to date. Um, and I think at, to fully answer your question, we, we need to understand that bit, but, but right now the, the, you know, best advice is to be able to say, you know what, if they eat a lot on this type of diet, they're going to tend to eat a lot on another one. That's a generalization. Um, but, uh, but probably the best we can do right now.
2: I think feed intake is kind of fascinating. Obviously I study, you know, mineral requirements and I think we've, we've kind of slid by with some of our perhaps too low mineral recommendations because we've overcome that which is simply cattle who eat more um, than in the past and so i'm i'm just constantly interested in you know think thinking about maternal contributions versus sire contributions to drivers like feed intake. Because obviously, at the end of the day, the best thing I can get for a calf to perform
0: for me is to get him to eat in the feedlot. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And and so it becomes a relationship of how much should they eat versus how much should they gain? You know, how many days were they in the feed yard? Because economically, a big eater is fine as long as they gained uh, disproportionately more, right? Um, that I think a challenge, though, is oftentimes people pick out in a group of fed cattle that really high performer that had a really good carcass, and they say, "Look at how much this animal's revenue was," and they compare it against the average cost of the pen. That's not a fair comparison because you're assuming that really high performer ate the average, and to your point. Uh, they very well could have been eating a lot more. So, economically speaking, just how much more profitable were they? And and it's hard to, if not impossible, to really get at that. But I but I think it's a question as an industry we need to wrestle with. So over time, we're not producing these animals that are actually less profitable because all we looked at was their revenue.
2: Absolutely. Well, we are reaching the end of our time together, Matt. So before we go into our three questions, is there any other topics or anything that you think we should have covered today?
0: Oh, there probably is. Um, but, the, you know, the, I, if I were to to leave people with a couple of things, it's, uh, you know, one, genetics is not just for geneticists. And it's not just for seed stock producers, it's for everyone. And, and for two reasons. One, the genetic change made by seed stock producers flows down to commercial cow calf herds, to feedlots, um, to packing plants and ultimately to consumers. So, so those changes impact the entirety of the industry and, and they have a long time. Uh, it takes a long time to necessarily manifest those changes, but, but they do flow down and they impact everyone. So, so it's important industry wide. For researchers not in genetics, it's important, too, because if you want to determine the effect of some mineral supplementation scheme, being able to control for genetic differences of animals could be important. Um, Just like if I want to know the genetic components of of a research project, I want to know if they were fed different mineral supplementation schemes. I want to control for that. So my my, uh, bias as a geneticist, I think it's important for everyone.
2: Well, you're preaching to the choir, Um, I'll forward this to my farm managers later, because I'm always like, there's a reason I want to buy my cattle for a research project from a single ranch to at most, um, you know, and I absolutely realize there's still an incredible amount of variation within a ranch for their group of calves, but it's still the best I can do in terms of trying to reduce everything from the genetic impacts to the environmental impacts that they had, because we didn't even talk about G by E today. (laughs)
0: Right, exactly. Exactly.
2: It's
1: time for our Famous Three. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com.
2: All right, Matt, so uh, this has been fun uh, catching up. I feel like it's been a while since we've uh, been in the same circle, so it was good to chat with you. So let's do our three famous questions here at the end. So you ready for
0: these? I'm ready.
2: Okay, first question. What is your favorite beef resource?
0: Yeah, well, the the answer I need to give is uh, UNL's beef production website, uh, beef.unl.edu. But if allowed a second... I would say um, eBeef.org, and and that's a uh, web resource for all things beef cattle genetics related and came about as a consortium really of uh, beef cattle extension genetics people like myself from from across the U.S.
2: Perfect. Yeah, eBeef.org. That's the first time that we've uh, had that answer. So, excellent. Not the first time we've had the beef website from you. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs>
2: It is, uh, I think it's in your contract there that you have, to, have yeah, to mention that. So. Yeah, I think
0: so. Yeah, I'd like to continue to get paid. Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay, second question is, what is something not related to beef that you're watching or reading or enjoying right now?
0: So enjoying uh, my five-year-old son, um, so uh, not not related to beef, but uh, um, when I'm not doing work, I am enjoying time with him. If if I were to, to think about um, a book that... I've started and stopped and started and stopped over time. Uh, it's a book called *Sapiens*, um, which really goes through kind of humankind history, um, and and I think it's a really thought-provoking read.
2: Have you done your strengths over there at UNL?
0: Um, a long time ago. I, be really candid. Um, I've uh, I've not put yeah. Um, need to be careful here. I, I've not put a lot of stock in that myself. Not because I don't see value in it. Um, Uh, but for whatever reason, it's, 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 uh, never been a priority. They, they don't have son of a gun as a strength. And, um, I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid that's really where I fit.
2: Well, I would be willing to bet a million dollars that you have context in your top five, because context is somebody who looks to history to inform the future. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I, I think it's incredibly valuable, um, because we only have so much time and, uh, I I hate to waste time doing something that's already been done um, when I can inform uh, the things to do based on based on what people have succeeded with or failed with.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Okay, last question. Um, What's a trait of someone you know, that's helped make them
0: successful? Uh, Perseverance. Um, So in my opinion, um, we all have adversity and and you know, we can get into, you know, who has more, who has less, what what is adversity. Reality is we all face some sort of adversity. And and I hate to be so callous about it, but um, generally people don't care. And And I hate, you know, your close friend network, family network obviously cares. But at the end of the day, successful people aren't bucketed as to, well, this person had to go through a lot of adversity. So we're putting them in a special category of success, right? Doesn't work that way. Um, so, so I think perseverance through adversity, learning from that to help inform, how do you carry on? I, I, I think is a, is a skill set that's extremely valuable. Um, and part of that's, you know, not hanging your head and saying, Oh, woe was me? Um, it's saying, right. Um I got to pick up and, and keep moving my feet forward.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about not having the victim mentality there.
0: Yeah, that that's, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, it's an easy mentality to have, but, um, you know, as I think about our earlier conversation, mentoring, um, graduate students, um, for me now being a parent, it, it's how do other people see you go through adversity, um, and, uh, and hopefully that helps them when when they have to go through something similar.
2: I was literally just thinking about that this morning. I was listening to a different podcast, and they were talking about how you can't you can't tell to do the training. And in fiction, they have this saying where you should show, not tell. Right? So don't just say he was angry. You you write something descriptive that makes the reader feel you know, that that character is angry. And what you're really saying is, as mentors, we're modeling all the time. So if we adopt a a victim mentality, those around us might choose to adopt that too. So we're, you know, we're always being, being looked at and need to make sure that we're modeling the behavior that we want to see in them too.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's a challenge because everyone has a day where they, you know, they just, you want to (laughs) complain. You just want to complain. But what good does that do to the person that you're unloading on? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, whatever it is, you go for a walk, you um, uh, whatever your, you know, uh, kind of Zen thing is, you do that, you get it out of your system, take a stick, go beat a tree stump in the yard, whatever it is, um, and and realize you've got to you've got to model the right way to, to go through this to the people that uh, are around you.
2: Excellent. Well, Matt, it's been great getting to catch up with you again today. Thanks so much for being our guest here today on the Beef Podcast Show, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.
0: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
2: Looking to elevate your brand and captivate
1: audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Medics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals
0: of your business.